Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people, and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yield. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm talking to you from the Vox Media headquarters in New York City. It is snowing. It's probably not snowing when you listen to this, but we're taping this a little bit in advance. I'm here with John Ridding, CEO of the Financial Times. Welcome, John. Thank you, Peter. Good to be here. It's been a while since we talked. We were just going over the chronology. Yeah, it's been uh, a couple of years, and then a couple of years before then. Um, and I think since we've been speaking, so much has been changing. It's So much has changed. The nice thing about talking to you is you, your story is consistent, which is, we have a subscription-based business, um, which for years was kind of a novelty in media. Right now, it's everyone wants a subscription-based business, so we can talk about that. This is a free podcast where we talk about subscription-based businesses. That's kind of the pitch. Good. It's, actually, it's actually not the pitch. It's a terribly boring podcast. But there are a lot of folks who come in this building right now talking about how they're launching a subscription business, they're pivoting to a subscription business. You have done this for a very long time. Let's let's just go over some top-line numbers. You guys started the subscription model, the online subscription model, when? So probably, yeah, the best part of a decade ago. Yeah. Um, and in those days, it was very lonely in subscription land. And prior to that, right, you famously, you've got the, what we call it salmon colored? <laughs> yeah, uh, salmon pick. August yeah. financial yeah. publication primarily aimed at a European audience and Americans who like to hang out with Europeans. Um, and then there was a free online component. Yeah, and I think we've always seen ourselves in the 30 years that I've been at the FT, um, we've always seen ourselves as very global. It's been part of our DNA. Um, but we've made a very big shift from print to digital. We still believe in print, but digital has been a real growth driver. So you launched the you you launched this paywall. It's a metered paywall, some version of that. Two thousand seven. This is it's hard to remember back then, but there was still this idea that that not only should stuff be free on the <laughs> internet, but it had to be free. There was no way would anyone would pay for this stuff. Yeah, it was kind of like a religious doctrine. And I remember when we sort of launched the paywall um, or the subscription model, because I don't regard the paywall is necessarily the best term because it sounds very rigid. We've always had a degree of flexibility uh, in our subscription model. But when we launched this, I remember coming to the US um, and talking about this and doing a tour of the West Coast. And it was very odd because, frankly, the reaction was was pretty hostile. I mean, there was a sense that um, you guys don't get it. And the line I remember from the time was the internet wants to be free, yep. which I always thought was kind of weird and a little ridiculous because clearly the internet doesn't want anything. It's a channel. Um, but we always felt and continue to feel that, um, you know, our journalism, whether it's in print, online, or frankly, what's coming down the track in voice probably, um, is valuable. And we need to get the revenues from that journalism to support a quality news operation. I think that since those early days, the world has moved much more our way. I think a lot of publishers have left it pretty late to get with that program, but I'm very pleased that we've been fixed on that as a core tenet of our yeah, business. Yeah, I, I want to talk about the mechanics of how it works, but before we get there, let's just do the top line first. So we're 11 years after launching a, a subscription model online. How many subscribers do you have? So we're now, our total paid-for users are about 925,000. That's a combination of digital and print? Yeah, and two-thirds of that are digital. So 900,000-plus uh, subs, yeah. two-thirds yeah. digital. Yeah. And then your, your revenue mix is now predominantly subscription? Yeah, so basically, um, again, there's been a kind of flipping of the uh, revenue model. So now, kind of getting on for two-thirds of our revenues are um, subscription uh, and content-based uh, revenues, and advertising has gone down to about 40%. 
so is this where you thought you would be 11 years ago? Can you model this out? Do you say we're going to be nearing a million subs in a decade? I mean, to be honest, I think anyone in those, you know, given how quickly things have been changing, anyone who makes kind of exact uh, forecasts of revenue splits five, ten years ahead is is probably smoking something. But we kind of figured that was the objective, to make the core um, foundations of the business model um, based on journalism and content, not just because we could see the risks in advertising, but because we kind of felt that, um, you know, if you go back to Henry Luce, the primary relationship of a publisher should be with the reader, not the advertiser. We love advertising, we'll take as much as we can get. But fundamentally, we felt that um, both from a sort of business model, but also from a position of principle and strategy, that the reader relationship was key. Is it my imagination? Have you tightened the paywall recently? Is it harder to get to the Financial Times without paying or registering? I, I notice your, your paywall coming up in front it's, of my screen a lot been, more often. Yeah, there's been quite a significant change in that we've moved from the metered model to what we call a sort of sam- a sampling model. Um, and that's the metered model worked fine and it kind of gave us our first. You get this many free clicks. So what you do, basically, within a, within a month, you get everything for free. So you have a month to read everything you like. And we felt that that was much more in line with... Um, that was the metered model, or that's where you're... That's, that's where, where we are now. now. So the metered model, you'd get um, 10 free a month, and right. we could flex that. You know, we started at 10, we, we reduced it. So we definitely tightened up the metered model. But then we thought, what do we really want to do? We really want to achieve um, the habit in digital that people used to have in print. I remember you getting on the train in my early days and you'd have the, the FT guy, you'd have the Times guy, you'd have the Guardian guy um, and, and, and girl. But I guess in those days, women were sort of uh, less uh, less present, something we also need to, to address. But um, there was a habit and we wanted to recreate that habit in digital. Um, a metered model kind of goes against that because you're by definition rationing. So we, we, what we wanted to say was, yeah, for a month, come and find, you come and read everything and build that habit. And ideally, you spend a month with the FT, you get to appreciate it, you become a subscriber. So we found that has given us this new phase of growth and actually accelerated uh, our subscriptions. Because, why do you think that accelerates? Because, again, the, the, the idea behind the meter was we're going to give you some amount of stories for free per month. And hopefully we give you so many. You come back to us so often you realize that you must have us. Um, it's sort of our job to keep bringing you in and, and producing scoops or whatever it is. Um, and that's sort of the standard model now for a lot of folks. And the, we, there's a great Wall Street Journal piece about how they're sort of using sort of uh, computer science to sort of figure out how many free stories they should give you based on your on, on who you are, reading habits. So the idea of just giving you basically a, a month of all you can eat and then putting that, the hammer down, right? Why do you think that has boosted the business? Well, there's a couple of things going on at the same time. But firstly, I think it precisely because it does give people um, exposure to the full range of what we do, um, whether it's business, whether it's arts, whether it's um, uh, politics. So uh, giving you more. Giving you more. I think people feel um, they get to understand the FT Mm -hmm. more deeply. At the same time, clearly, we've been spending a lot of time and investment and expertise in optimizing the whole subscription science and our data team, which has been transformational um, in terms of uh, optimizing the model, in terms of understanding the propensity to subscribe, in terms of targeting more effectively, has done a great job. So I think not just the the, the sort of model has changed, but the expertise within that model. And of course, uh, last year, there was a bit of a breakthrough with Google where um, first click free, finally um, demised, <laughs> following a lot of discussions and pressure. And again, for if you have not following this closely, the idea was that, that Google was insisting that you get yeah. that if you that if you wanted to be indexed by Google, that you needed to allow the X user numbers, to yeah. see 
the story for free, or at least a number of free stories. Yeah. Again, this is this philosophy yeah. that yeah. We, they weren't going to send people somewhere yeah. where there was a paywall. Yeah, and I think that's been a really important change because we felt all along that the throttle, the terms of access, should be down to the publisher. And there was a lot of toing and froing, and you know, I think Google um, came to accept that position. So first click free uh, has gone. Um, but we are now working with Google, frankly, to experiment and to model what works best. And there's different cohorts with you know, different propensity to subscribe. So I have to say one of the key things that's happened on that subscription journey has just been the application of increasingly sophisticated um, science around the whole subscription model. So one of the reasons why I think it's hard for, for new readers or new learners or new, subscri new subscription model publishers to start here, the idea that you can just flick a switch and go from an ad-based model to a subscription model, uh, I think is uh, misguided. I think it's a pretty hard um, process that requires an awful lot of investment. And time. Well, I'm, I'm going to get you to spill some 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 how tos in a little bit. So if you are considering, like everyone is, <laughs> uh, putting up a paywall, creating a subscription model, we can talk about how to make that work. Financial Times is is a business paper. Um, a lot of corporate clients. What is the average subscription price? So the standard subscription um, in the U.S. is about three hundred and fifty dollars. That's your average, or that's, that's that's the standard, right? So yeah. what what is the average? What what is your average subscription? Well, it'll, it'll be that because we don't. We, so. Occasionally we do campaigns, yeah. but fundamentally, that's the price. And then the premium is five hundred and seventy, five hundred and eighty dollars. So you're yeah. charging three hundred and fifty dollars plus uh, for for your for your publication, um, which right, which automatically means you've got a very specific segment. Um, either people are affluent and are paying out of pocket or more likely they've got a, a corporate account, right? Depends. Someone's paying for it. Yeah, it kind of depends how you look at it because I would argue, frankly, um, that that is less than um, a double espresso from Starbucks every day. So it's like, where do you see the value? And I personally think that we are at the premium pricing end. We're I'm not premium. saying it's over. It's overpriced. <laughs> I'm just saying it's not cheap. So yeah. how do you th – and, and so if you're in 900,000 subs, eventually I'm assuming at some point you start thinking, we, we, if we're going to keep growing – we want more consumers who are actually paying out of pocket to pay for us. Do you think about, well, maybe there's a, a less expensive tier that we can offer? We are thinking about um, different pricing models, but I think actually there's still an awful lot of growth to go for at the price points that we have because of the quality of what we do. And if you were to think about the global audience for quality news, not just business news, political news, social news. The Weekend FT has fantastic arts uh, and society coverage. We think there's an awful lot more readership to go for. And actually, the digital revolution in mobile has made it much easier for us to reach those people because we're not constrained by the economics of print sites, which are frankly pretty tough. So, and you can see it in the numbers. I mean, we've added, you know, we're growing at 10% pretty much year on year in our subscriber numbers at that price point. That's pretty healthy. So I don't think we feel that we're running out of road at that pricing level. Um, but it may be that there's different packages, there's more flexible packages that we can um, develop for different audiences. But um, frankly, at the moment, we're just gunning full steam ahead to get through that million level, which is the sort of overarching company goal, and then take it from there. It used to be sort of the conventional wisdom, all right, the FT can charge, the Wall Street Journal can charge. If you're a business publication, you can make a subscription model work. Um, and now we're seeing a lot of flowering of other subscriptions uh, that are working, uh, most prominently the New York Times, the Washington Post. A lot of people attribute that to sort of a reaction to Trump. Um, Jessica Lesson, you've been on stage with her in one of my events. Yep. Uh, also a business publication. But you've got things like The Athletic, uh, which is now doing sports stuff. You've got and, and more and more niche stuff. Is there a kind of content group that you think works best for subscription? 
Or do you think this can work for literally anything? I think it can work for a very broad range of publishers. I think it is, uh, to be candid, easier, right, if you're a high-end specialist business publication. But I think a lot of the industry has um, was too quick to dismiss the ability to charge for content. Um, and my view is that if you have something that differentiates you, something that makes you special. It could be a brand identity. It could be a columnist. It could be a sector of coverage. You have something that differentiates you. You have the ability to charge. Um, and I think if you don't have anything that is in any way different or special, you've got some bigger questions to ask about yeah, but the, what you, are you, you doing. You'd have bigger questions in general, right? Because, mm. I mean, I guess at, at the biggest end, right, the, I mean, you, can have, you can have commodity news if you have it at massive, massive scale. And even then... You have some problems. Um, but, I mean, the idea of making, you know, when you ever ask anybody, what's your success? Uh, what's, what's, what's the key to success in, in, in content? They say, oh, make, make good stuff. Or different stuff. I mean, good stuff and different stuff. I think that anything where um, you are unique or special is going to be a reason to charge. And, you know, this comes back, this isn't just in news media, but I remember one of the arguments um, around the subscription issue was always, you know, well, the demographic one too. Well, young people aren't going to pay um, for anything online. They're not going to pay um, for information or for you know for anything digital. And I remember that at the time. I don't know if you cast your mind back, maybe when we were first meeting years ago, the explosion of the ringtones industry. Yep. <laughs> you know, that was a ten billion dollar industry um, driven by uh, novelty. Young, yeah, and young people. But you know, they were prepared to pay for stuff that they had to pay for. So, I think. Um, you know, number one, I think it's too I don't off. think you want to draw an analogy between your business <laughs> and the ringtone I'm just saying business. that young, you know, this demographic that people said would never pay for anything online did. Right. Um, and I think that if you have something special and unique, people will pay whatever their demographic, whatever their cohort. Did a thing with Meredith Levian from The Times. She said the, the, the biggest segment of their new subscribers are millennials. Right. Yeah. And I think actually that's... Which got a big round of applause. Yeah. Them. And I think actually we're seeing growth, a significant growth in sort of younger readers who I feel, you know, for a whole range of social and political issues are much more engaged and want to be much more engaged than people have given them credit for. You know, you look at Brexit in the UK, you look at, um, you know, the sort of uh, gun control issue here. I think we're seeing actually a lot of deeper engagement from young people and they want reliable information. I want to ask you about Brexit, but first, our business model is still based on giving this thing away for free and bringing advertisers in. So we're going to hear from an advertiser right now. We're back with John Ridding. Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing the socks right now. That's why it seems so comfortable. If you saw me at Recode Media, you would have seen those socks flashing too. They're a bright blue pair. The people are impressed with those. So not only are they comfortable, not only do they look great, they smell great. They're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber that actually eliminates odor. They're easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. I buy them myself. That is the best endorsement I can give you. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. You will like these things if for some reason you don't like them. Unbelievable. You can hang on to them. Tell Mac Weldon they will send you your money back. You get 20% off with the promo code RECODE at MacWeldon.com. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people. So food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Good news, farmers are already using AI to help increase crop yields. They use Watson and the IBM Cloud, and they provide access to weather data 
analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. That's good. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. And we're back with John Ridding. CEO of Financial Times. Um, you mentioned Brexit a minute ago. That was on my list of things to ask you about. Um, it seems like among the many re- many reactions to, to Brexit and the Trump election, um, one thing I've, I've thought for a while is this is sort of repudiation by a big portion of the electorate at least of, of the sort of philosophy that the Financial Times stands for, right? Free trade, sort of global capitalism, right? Globalist is is an insult now within some some parts of the the Trump White House people who like Trump. Um, have you guys thought a bit about what Brexit and what Trump's election sort of means for the content you're creating? Yeah, of course. I think when you see big um, social and political trends and events, um, and you know the coincidence of, of Trump and Brexit raised you know, a bunch of similar. Questions um, and ongoing now, still right? You've got yeah, ongoing. Absolutely, populism is not over, but for sure. And I think one of the issues there is just the insecurity um, that comes with the pace and nature of change: Um, job security, um, economic security, border security in an age of sort of terrorism. So I think there's some pretty profound issues around the whole um, global um, agenda and globalization. You know, we still feel that actually the benefits from globalization far outweigh the costs. I think there is a job to be done in explaining that. Um, right, because one of the, the shorthands for this is, you know, they're not racist, they're economically insecure. But an, a, a less uh, cynical way of putting it is that globalism, global capitalism works great for the Financial Times and the Financial Times audience and the 900,000 subs you have. It is not working well for a big swath of the population. Do you think your readers are sort of rethinking what's going on or do you think it's just, like you just said, just a matter of just sort of explaining how this is going to work for everyone better in the long run? I think, you know, frankly, there are um, there is a realization that it's not just explanation. I think there has to be serious thought about um, how uh, the wealth generated by societies is apportioned. Um, and so I think there's some really valid questions. I think there's also a series of very important questions around the information flows around these events. And clearly one of the big stories of today in our times is the reliability of information around these big debates and the lack of trust, I think, in large swathes of media, which... Um, it complicates, obviously, um, the ability to um, put these ideas and, and arguments forward. So, to put a fine point on that, right, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, on and on, increasingly asking people to pay to receive their news, high-quality news, right? Um, it's sort of easy to project out where we, where we go here is, is the best news goes to people who are paying for it and people who aren't paying for it get not good news. Um, it seems like this is going to exacerbate these trends we're talking about. Not necessarily. I think there's a couple of things. One is we do have quite a lot of news that is free. So, you know, we are very keen to broaden our reach to bring people within the FT. And there's a number of ways we do that. We put stories out on social media. So, and, and on big events, we often uh, frequently make our content free because we feel that we have a, a mission to explain around around these issues. So, you know, I, I think the, as I said earlier, the idea of a hard paywall uh, is not 
is not right. And so, there's an election or a bomb goes off or some yeah, we big world make, event. You say we will you, make can, a, you can read this for free. Yeah, a it's a little it. bit of a weird message, right? Saying normally this stuff isn't important enough to, to, to distribute for free. But in this case, we think it's so important everyone should read it for free. Well, I think there are times when you feel there is a broader mission and the opportunity and the need to put that news uh, in front of a broad audience. Um, but I think more generally, I think what works in the other direction, and again, it comes down to what you think about the economics. I do not think that, certainly in our case, what we're charging is expensive. I think it is, it is absolutely affordable for people who want trustworthy quality news. And guess what? People do. And what we've seen uh, right after Brexit and right after the Trump election has been some major spikes in terms of... So you of had a Trump bump as well, a or huge, a Brexit bump yeah, or both. Absolutely. And, and again, I think when you look at the growth in our subscriptions, what we're finding is that in a world where, sadly, um, the broader news and information ecosystem is being abused and trust is declining, what you find is that trusted brands like the FT and, you know, like others like the New York Times... Um, benefit from that because you do get um, genuine demand from people really needing to understand what the truth is in a world where it's been increasingly hard to find fake news, um, scale news, distorted news, the um, deeply flawed information flow on some of the big social media platforms, I think is actually, you know, leading people to think, I need a trusted guide, I need a trusted source. Uh, we've been investing in quality, independent journalists of integrity for 130 years, that's why people will come to us. Let's talk about the platforms, the ecosystem. When you and I first started talking, we um, spent a lot of time talking about Apple's. Uh, yeah. uh, this is when people thought the iPad was going to be sort of the, key, <laughs> the key distribution method and a lot of discussion, discussion about subscriptions and, and what a replica magazine would look like. Um, it's really hard to remember. Uh, there was a big, a lot of excitement over Rupert Murdoch's The Daily. Yes. It was going to be sort of this... this uh, <laughs> Harry Potter-like experience through a newspaper. Um, that's all. We've all. That's all sort of gone away. People still use the iPad. Um, when you get up in the morning, you start thinking about your digital partners or people you'd like to be your digital partners. What's what's your primary concern? Are you most concerned about getting Google to funnel you potential subscribers? Are you trying to reconcile your Facebook strategy? What's I know you're going to say they're all equally important, but. What's the one you wake up thinking about? Well, the thing I always feel think about is that whoever we deal with, we must have a direct relationship with our readers, and that was one of the issues. That was the issue with, with, with Apple, Apple, right? They yeah. were controlling the, yeah, the, the access the to the reader. Yeah, right. Yeah. And we feel... And, and I think, you guys basically said, no, thank you, we're just going to... Yeah, I mean, look, it was working great for us with Apple. We were seeing really growing subscriptions and audience, but you know, a key principle for us has been and would always be that direct relationship with the reader, and I think that's been completely vindicated by everything that's been going on in platform land. Um, so beyond that, with the broader ecosystem, you know, frankly, it's deeply flawed in many ways. We've, we're seeing that real time and it's pretty freaky in many respects and we might come back to that. But, um, you know, our, we're also pragmatic. We have to optimize within that ecosystem. We've made, I think, reasonably good progress with Google in terms of developing um, our subscription technology with Google. They just announced a, a Google News initiative yesterday. It'll be again sometime in the past when you when you hear this. They said we're going to spend three hundred million dollars over three years. Um, we're going to make it easier to subscribe. Um, we're going to do a bunch of other things. I think you guys were participants in that in that yeah. in that event, right? Yeah, we're involved in that. I Is mean, that look, meaningful to you? Potentially. I mean, you know, we've we've had our periods of frustration with Google. We've actually hammered a lot of that out. And as I say, over the past year, we've seen some pretty good progress. The why, why do you think Google or Facebook is going out of their way to say we want to help publishers? 
Well, I think there's an important distinction to be made between words and deeds. Uh Um, So, you know, I think on the one hand, clearly the regulatory dimension is out there, um, even more so this week following the sort of Cambridge Analytics thing. Right. So so we're we're in in advance of us getting regulated or increasing pressure for us to be regulated. Let's let's try to offer some carrots and and other. Yeah, and I think also, you know, one of the things I've been banging on about to Google for a long time is, you know, their mission statement is to organize the world's information, which is a great uh, mission statement, but it doesn't mean anything if um, the world's information isn't worth organizing. So, you know, given the rise of fake news, unreliable news, I think this put a pretty sharp focus on the need for quality news. And that frankly means subscription models. The idea that you can run a quality newsroom, uh, a you know, quality journalism based on advertising alone in a world where Google and Facebook hoover up, what, 80 or 90 right. cents in every new digital ad dollar is not realistic. By the way, this works pretty well for Facebook and Google because they're not in the subscription business. So if you tell them the answer is help us build our subscription business, they're fine with that. They're in the advertising business. I, I wrote a piece that said they can't yeah, really right. fundamentally help you guys because <laughs> they're competing with you yeah. and winning, right? They're hoovering up all the money, like you said. So my inbox is full <laughs> of congratulatory emails from publishers. Yeah. One email from someone at Google saying, really? <laughs> Question mark. It's the subject line, and that's pretty much the, the extent of it. Um, to me, this seems like a not very controversial thing to say. They're clearly in the advertising business. They're, they will continue. They are the advertising business. They are the advertising <laughs> business. And so for them to say, well, we're going to help you in some way, but not in a way that competes with our core business is not a terribly uh, difficult thing for them to at least say. Well, I think there's a couple of dimensions there. First off, there's a really good piece. I read it that you oh, did. Oh, good. I'll add to my um, congratulations list. <laughs> and I think there are – the advertising business isn't just Facebook and Google. There's new dimensions. There's branded content. There's innovations around advertising which are viable and growing certainly for us and I think for other publishers. But I think that any publisher that has been focusing on a kind of general digital advertising model in a, in a time of Google and Facebook is – going to run into very serious business model issues and problems. Um, but I don't see, but I do think that there is the opportunity for um, the platforms to um, be a lot more helpful in terms of subscription model development. But fundamentally and most important of all, I think that any publisher that um, ties their fortunes to a social to social media or search platforms um, is making a major strategic mistake. Our belief all along is that we have to have um, an independent, um, uh, standalone uh, business model and operation that does not depend on policy changes or the whims of the social media and platforms. And, you know, when we saw earlier this year the change in the Facebook news algorithm, that was a wake-up call, I think, to a lot of people in the industry that if you bet the farm on Facebook's very enticing reach and they can change the weather kind of overnight um, with changes to the the news algorithm, you're pretty exposed. The alarm went off probably a little too late for a lot of people. I mean, if you're just, like you said, if you're just thinking about subscriptions now, you're you're in trouble. That said, if, let's say, over the last year you've been thinking, we should really figure out a subscription business, and you you are moving toward there, and you're not the Financial Times, um, what are some things you need to be thinking about besides make great great content that is distinct? Let's say you've, you've got that part nailed. What else? Well, I think specialization, being very confident in what I'm very clear about, and very clear to the newsroom um, about what makes you different and must have. If you've got anything that's must have, that's a good basis. Um, and frankly, to um, you know, invest in the, the the gritty, difficult stuff of a subscription model. I mean, it's there's a lot of. So, um, what is what is the grit? Because again, make good stuff. <laughs> 
<laughs> good. Uh, make stuff that's must-have. I guess you could have some discussion about how you measure that, but yeah. there's kind of a you know it when you see it, right? Yeah. You kind of can distinguish that. Do I need this to do my job, or is this kind of can I only get this there? Yeah. Let's say you're you're headed towards that path. What is the sort of the gritty stuff that that isn't apparent to a dummy like me? It's sort of measuring uh, the readers, who's reading what when, uh, what content is working for them. You know, we've always been very clear. We're, we're very data-driven, but we've always been very clear that we are fundamentally editorially driven. You know, we will never second-guess our editors, but the data is very useful for them to sort of um, to sort of understand what, what's working. Um, and I think sort of just having some very clear um, goals for the whole organization around what um, what success looks like. Um, the key driver for us, I think, or one of the key drivers, which I, I think is probably more generally applicable, is this idea of engagement. Like, um, how many people are... So you measure the engagement from how, how, how often people are coming, how much time they're spending when they come, how many articles they're reading. So this engagement sort of score or metric we apply to every single one of our readers... Um, and we track it very closely. And I think that enables the whole organization to understand um, what's working and what's keeping that loyalty and habit with readers. So the subscription number, in a sense, um, is a symptom of having a very effective engagement strategy. So Are you a, measuring per article? That was an engaging article, that article... Yeah, I mean, it's quite, a complex, it's quite a complex set of calculations that goes into the score, but fundamentally it's a combination of time, amount of articles read, and, and the recency with which people came. And if they score pretty well on those three things, they're an engaged reader. If you were an old school journalist and the, the web came along and all of a sudden <laughs> people were measuring your productivity by the number of clicks you got per article or however they were measuring it, you said, oh, this is gross and I don't yeah. like it. And if, you were in a, if you'd been in a different business, you're always getting measured. But um, and again, people will say, well, one of the problems with the ad model is, is it, it, it gener- you do all this clickbait. You write stuff that people will want to click on. I'm a little confused about how that's different than a subscription model where you write stuff that people want to Yeah, I mean, used wrongly, data can be, you know, frankly, pretty um, uh, dangerous, actually. I mean, if you're just trying to optimize clicks, you can do all sorts of things that are not true to quality news. So we don't – we're very careful about how we use the data. Um, it informs, it doesn't drive. But you're still measuring what your audience wants to read, right? It's yeah. still fundamentally saying, yeah. do you like this? We'll give you more of it, Yeah. Right? But what we don't do is we don't follow the data. Um, so we don't say, hey, this story is looking pretty exciting out there in the world. It's getting lots of clicks. We should deploy resources there. Our view is that we set the agenda. We don't follow it. Nonetheless, it's still quite important when you're thinking in a macro and strategic term about what kinds of sectoral coverages, for example, AI might be developing as a really interesting theme for our readers. And you can see that. Um, through the data that informs decisions about, you know, where we invest, what kind of services we develop. So it's kind of in that sort of slightly broader, um, um, broader theme. And, and and but at some point you also have to go. We think AI is going to be important. Yeah, absolutely. We we're not really sure what it yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and we don't have a huge audience for it yet, but we're yeah. going to bet on it, right? You have yeah. to do some of that, right? Where you yeah. test out at different ideas and you're ahead early. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, I don't often quote Donald Rumsfeld, but there are things you know, things you um, know you don't know, and things you don't know you don't that know. Is, I've seen you quote Donald Rumsfeld <laughs> before. I was Googling I will, you before. I will stop You've it. you um, before. It's a great one. <laughs> Known unknowns. It's but great. I think that serendipity dimension and the judgment factor is crucial, actually, to news media and also crucial to, certainly crucial to a business audience, but a more general audience. I think that's it. Things you, I mean, one of the dangers, of course, with um, social media is that silo effect. People only get 
uh, the echo chamber. They only get what they're asking for. They only get what their friends are talking about. That's actually pretty unhealthy. But there is an FT version of that, right, which is you're going to get a worldview that kind of looks like the people – have the, the same worldview that people who you work with, probably people you live with. Um, most publications have a version of this as well. There's an outcry when the New York Times decided to hand over the editorial page to people <laughs> who voted for Donald Trump, right? That's a third to 45 percent mm. of the country. And to hear some Times readers describe it, that's terrible, right? And the FT has its own version of that. I, I would disagree with that. I think that the FT um, has um, very much resisted this trend towards polarization. If you look at our op-ed pages, there's generally a range of views. We run pro-Brexit stuff on our op-ed pages. There's a pretty lively debate, uh, even within our columnists, frankly. There's um, quite diverse views. I think we see our mission very clearly as being a forum for discussing a lot of these really important issues at a time when, frankly, a lot of news media has become troublingly polarized. Uh, you guys were owned by Pearson for a very long time. I always debate about who was going to buy you. Um, up until the very last minute, looked like Axel Springer <laughs> was going to buy you. I think there were some Dewey defeats Truman headlines. I think maybe even, I don't want to disparage anyone, but I think maybe even your own publication reported that you were being bought by Axel Springer. Uh, and then that didn't happen. Nikkei bought you instead. Um, I want to ask about Nikkei, but, but you were obviously there for that transaction. Can you describe what happened? Because normally when someone's going to get bought, it's fairly evident who the buyer is at some point. There isn't a last-minute switch. What, what happened there? I think what happened was simply that there were um, a number of deeply interested um, buyers and it was a very um, close-run thing. And right to the end, of course, because I was a player as CEO of the FT, I wasn't allowed to be in the room for the final decision, rightly so. Um, so I was... You're pretty close to the room. Pretty close to the room. <laughs> my nose, my nose uh, up against the glass of the room. But... Um, it was, you know, probably the most dramatic uh, day of my business life. How close? Um, how close was that deal to going to Axel? Like, was it within hours? Was well, it? I was not in that room, yeah. so um, and actually, I can't say. Um, but what I can say is that there was some very serious uh, interest from very serious people. Uh, in the end, uh, Nikkei came in with a, you know, a good um, offer. Not just, frankly, in terms of the numbers, but in terms of their vision for the FT. And I think one of the things that isn't um, understood enough is I think Pearson took their role as their stewardship role very seriously that the FT should end up with a long-term owner that really understood the values of the FT and I'm delighted that that's absolutely what we've seen with Nikkei um, and I think it helps that they're sort of private they can take a long-term view which in a world of major disruption, I think we're entering a whole new phase of disruption in news media. Um, but having the ability to have that sort of long-term view and that same um, belief in quality independent journalism uh, is frankly vital, um, refreshing, and very reassuring. What, what has changed in NK? And the answer cannot be nothing. So they, they have been, as they promised, completely hands-off in terms of editorial coverage and have been absolutely... Um, uh, scrupulous on that front. And um, what we have seen is a number of um, sort of areas of cooperation in, in the business side. So we now have a combined um, sales team in, in Asia, which is working really well. We've just launched actually a new product um, called Scout Asia, which is a sort of news and, and data service about Asian companies uh, for, for the world. Um, we're working with them on a sort of business English venture. So there's a number of specific investment projects that we that think... That wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened and actually frankly, unleash both the FT brand and the Nikkei brand um, and we think could become quite substantial businesses. So what I, what, one of the things I really appreciate and respect about 
the Nikkei strategy is it's focused on growth. They believe in growth. And frankly, at a time when a lot of people view news media as playing defense, uh, we're playing offense and they want us to grow and we are growing. What does offense look like besides growing your, your subscription business? It's growing the subscription business. It's innovating around advertising models, branded content, etc. And it's conceiving of... Uh, and launching new product innovations like Scout Asia, like Business English, and there's a number of others that we're thinking about at the moment. I hear rumblings about M&A activity in part yeah. because uh, because things are cheaper now than they were a couple of years ago. I hadn't noticed that so much. <laughs> yeah, you should ask around. Uh, but it seems like you are in a position where if you want to bolt on products to the business, you could. Yeah, we've made a couple of acquisitions under Nikkei, a business called AlphaGrid, which does branded content in video, which is great. We've just bought a business called Longitude, which does research, really to help develop that sort of new um, advertising and marketing uh, strategy. Um, but absolutely, we are very interested in looking at what's out there. Um, you should buy the information, right? It's a good complimentary <laughs> business. Yeah, I, I normally like to announce deals and projects online. <laughs> yeah, it's just between us. <laughs> but um, I do think there is an opportunity. What we, what we look for is something that can accelerate our strategy, that is consistent with the strategy that can accelerate what we do. But also, frankly, to bring in new areas of expertise, because I think we're all aware that this, the pace of change is... Um, is accelerating, if anything. You know, people think, the way I think about it, we're at the third phase of disruption. Phase one was sort of digital, phase two was mobile. And now I think we're getting a combination of AI, blockchain type technologies and voice, which I think is going to be a really interesting challenge for um, for publishers. Well, let's talk about voice next time. You're at 925,000 subs? Yep. Uh, when do you think you hit a million? So uh, I think a very wise uh, mentor of mine once said, give a, give a target um, or give a date don't give both. Um, but actually, we're closing in on that pretty quickly. It's you know, a year or so. I okay. Think. So next time we talk, you'll be at a million plus. We can talk about voice, how that's working out. We can talk yeah. about how, whether or not Google has delivered on its promises. Deal? Look forward to it. Thanks for coming, John. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again, John, for coming on the podcast. Thanks to you guys for listening. Special thanks to Jonah Kafka, who sat through that interview and barely said a word. Very quiet. We're very proud of you. Say, you can say hello now, Jonah. Say hello. Sup, bro? Okay. That's one way to say hello. Got a line for you here? Before we go, one more time, tell someone about this show. Post about it on Facebook, email it to your friends, and tweet about it or else. Very good, Jonah. Jonah's not an employee, so we can't fire him for that performance. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media. They bring you those ads so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Jill Robbie, who edits the show. Thanks to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. Thanks again to Jonah Kafka, who gets the last word. This is Recode Media. My daddy will be back next week, so he will see you dead. See ya. Bye. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. 16 million new collar jobs will be created by 2024. To help fill them, IBM's new education model gives high school students workplace experience and an associate's degree. 90 P-TECH schools are already preparing graduates for tomorrow's STEM careers. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash P-TECH.